This podcast is brought to you by SunGrow. We are on the verge of 2020, and you are planning projects for the next year, the next couple of years, projects well into the decade, perhaps. And if that's the case, then SunGrow is the company you should turn to for solar inverters. They are leading supplier across the Americas and across the world with more than three gigawatts shipped in just the past two years. SunGrow inverters are the backbone of some of the most innovative projects in the world, from floating PV to big projects for tech companies. Find out more at sungrowpower.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor with Green Tech Media. Welcome to our last episode before the calendar flips to 2020. By this date, Ray Kurtzwill thought we'd have nanobots to feed our cells, making eating obsolete. The Rand Corporation thought we'd have apes performing manual labor. And a lot of people thought we'd be on Mars by now. We may not have any of those things, but we do have anthropomorphic speakers and doorbells that spy on us, same-day delivery of any piece of junk we could want, and canned air for people living in smog-filled cities. We also have the disembodied voices of Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. Catherine is the chair of 38 North Solutions. She's there in D.C. Hey, Catherine. Hey, happy to be here. Jigger is the president of Generate Capital. He is in Bethesda, Maryland. Hey, Jigger. Hey, just recovering from holiday season parties. I, I heard that you both were at a party over the weekend and it got kind of crazy. Well, we had one at our house and it got kind of busy. And now we're heading over to Catherine's place. Yeah, tomorrow is when we get cut loose. <laughs> I have received no invites. Well, I'll add you to Catherine's invite list tomorrow. <laughs> Forward the invitation and bring your baby. Well, here we are finishing the teens, our our awkward teenage years. Uh, We're closing out the decade this week with a retrospective. We've been doing this show since 2013. So we're going to share some of our top storylines of the last 10 years, many of which played out while we were doing this show. So to start, we're going to have a personal retrospective. Let's think back to 2009 at the turn of the decade. What was the thing that was consuming you at the time? Catherine? Yeah, so Barack Obama had just been elected. We were in a downward spiral of a recession, and I had just been hired to lead the Gridwise Alliance to do Smart Grid. And so what was on my mind was trying to figure out how do we get a whole bunch of economic stimulus dollars focused on smart grid technologies. She had a shovel in her hand, and she was... Shovel ready. She was <laughs> I was shoveling it, let me tell you. So what happened? Like, how did that money get distributed, and what impact do you think it had? Yeah, it was it was really great times, honestly. So one thing I did was I convinced one of my members, which was then Kima, I said, I'll give you free membership to Gridwise Alliance if you will put together a jobs report for me that says, if the government invests X billion dollars, we'll get X thousand jobs out of it. And so they did that. I testified before the Senate. The Senate took the numbers in that report and put them into the legislation and put billions and billions of dollars uh, into smart grid. And and that then stimulated 50% additional investment from utilities to do just a ton of work on advanced metering and synchrophasers and all kinds of other distribution technologies to make the grid smarter. So it had a lot going for it in 2009. The term smart grid is no longer in vogue. What did we get from that money? What do you think it accomplished? Meaning, did we get the smart grid we imagined back in 2009? Uh, What elements of it do you think materialized and what didn't? So we were still trying to figure out what do we need to prevent something like that outage in 2003 that took out the entire Northeast and took a year for us to figure out that it was a branch in Cleveland that had caused it. So in 2009, when those funds were sent to install synchrophasers and other technologies on the grid, those technologies are now there and we would never have that long either to recover or to figure out what happened to the grid. So those technologies are out there. We have a lot more visibility on the grid. Unfortunately, a couple of things happen. One is that the Department of Energy, and I would probably argue the entire administration, had a very difficult time conveying the successes that they had with the stimulus. So 
there was just not a lot of discussion about what all the good things were that were happening with these stimulus dollars. So it just sort of went into a black hole. If you really dig around, you can find some really good reports on what they were able to do, but they didn't really talk about it much. So that's problematic. If you if you have all this money going into projects and you're not talking about them. The other thing is the reality on the ground is that a lot of this went to smart meters which, you know, haven't really led to what my vision was when I was at Gridwise Alliance, which is customer side of the grid and the what is typically the generation side of the grid become fungible so that everybody is talking to each other and everybody can participate equally. I'm still working on that now because it's not a reality. So that was something I was really hoping would be spurred. And that has not happened. We still have a lot of work to do on that side. Yeah, it seems like the utilities got a lot more efficient by having a lot more data to put into their grid operations. But I'm not sure the customer benefits completely materialized. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the utilities kind of are still trying to figure out what do we do with all the data and how do we allow customers to have access and customers to really engage. And luckily, we now have a bunch of innovators out there who are saying, oh, we can help manage that because utilities may not be the right entities to do it. Jigger, think back to 2009. What was consuming you at that moment? That was a busy year for me. <laughs> so that was, that was a year I sold Sun Edison and then uh, joined uh, the Carbon War Room. So I, I guess joining the Carbon War Room was my, what was consuming me at the time. And so the Sun Edison story is obviously like one of the most pivotal business stories in clean tech of the decade. Remind us what happened after you left the company and and Sun Edison eventually imploded. And what's the significance for the broader industry? Yeah, I you know well I think when we sold Sun Edison, um, you know Sun Edison had developed a reputation for being, you know, really really smart at project finance. Right? If you remember back then, project finance still wasn't really a thing, and so. You know, mostly people were talking about engineering solutions, right? SunPower was pushing their like kind of two-axis, one-axis tracker. Um, there was, you know, First Solar pushing its cadmium telluride modules, and you know, you had all these other people pushing uh, technology solutions. That that project finance wasn't really recognized at the time as the groundbreaking sort of thing that it became. And I think MEMC didn't quite understand what they were buying. And so after they bought Sun Edison, they had, you know, like $1.5 billion in the balance sheet. They started building everything we had in our pipeline and, uh, you know, got dug themselves a huge hole, um, had a hard time selling the projects to, to buyers because, you know, they just couldn't figure out what price they wanted to sell it at. And so there was just a lot of confusion within MEMC and then you know, I guess sometime around, what, 2012, 2013, they finally realized that they needed to have a go-to place to sell the project, so they created a yield co. So they sort of invented that yield co structure with NRG. Um, yeah, and then they, you know, overextended themselves, and I think it was definitely, you know, one of the top sort of uh, stories of the decade. Well, what does that story tell us about the decade itself? Well, I don't know that it tells us much at all, right? I mean, when you think about the 90s, um, you know, and you think about like how Gateway Computers and Dell both ca- both came out of the gate at the same time and then Gateway imploded. I don't know that it said anything about computers. I think it really said more about, um, you know, sort of what happens during the go-go days of clean energy. I mean, today, I would say that companies that were interesting, small Companies in 2009 are now giants and behemoths, right? And when you think about what First Solar does with a $6 billion market cap or, you know, what some of these big yield codes do now, um, they're responsible in some cases for 25% of all electricity additions to the grid in some countries. And so, you know, I think part of what the decade shows us is that clean energy has grown up. Well, also, Jigger, what's interesting to me is that all of those companies that Sun Edison, you know, ate up and they got too big for themselves, all of those people are still out there doing really good things. And they're all doing new companies and, you know, new business models. And I just see that in in all of these spaces where there's been a lot of churn, companies grow, get too big, they break up, different new companies start up. But there's so many smart people out there that have continued to be out there all along. 
I think that's exactly right. And Jigger, I think you're underselling the significance of the story because Catherine's point is spot on. There's this, the Sun Edison diaspora, I think has been really influential throughout the industry and other companies that have imploded. You've seen, you know, employees uh, at the executive level and at the management level go off and start different companies that have been successful. And then Sun Edison also was representative of the you know, the shift toward vertical integration from tech companies going into project development um, to the overreach of many companies that were, you know, getting beyond project development and into all sorts of other businesses. And then the, the, the financial engineering that took hold in the industry for better or worse. And those were definitely broader stories yeah, for better. I think it's for better. Like, I mean, I think that I appreciate you guys saying that. And I, I certainly agree with you. I, I think that what happened... So in the 2009 era, right, as Catherine was saying, we were in a financial crisis and markets had really seized up. And I think what you look at today is because of the efforts of a lot of the people at Sun Edison and then, you know, as their diaspora went around, uh, they continued that work. Today, I mean, the cost of capital for solar and wind is so ungodly low that that really came out because of all of that deep education work of all those folks to the point today where you probably have two to three times more money chasing projects in solar and wind than you have projects to invest in, right? So we actually have way more money chasing projects than we have projects to invest in right now. And that is a legacy from, you know, the the toiling that people did over the last 10 years. So then what do you think will be consuming you in 2020? Well, I think that, you know, I sort of skipped through the, you know, carbon warm nonprofit phase and went back into for profit with generate capital. And I think it's just about doing it all over again, right? Because, you know, ultimately solar and wind has a wall of capital, but there's another fifty climate solutions from regenerative agriculture to fuel cells to, you know, green ships, um, and hydrogen powered ferries that are not yet, you know, fully financeable or bankable. Right. And figuring out how to get the rest of that stuff um, fully bankable. I mean, just minute stuff like, you know, New York City passed this Green New Deal. There's 10,000 buildings that have to hit the standard by 2023, 2024. Many of those buildings, like no one has ever figured out how to project finance that stuff. Right. And so figuring out how to bring large scale capital into decarbonizing the planet to me is, uh, is, you know, like sort of the direct consequence of the success of solar and wind. People are hungry for trying to figure out other stuff now. So, Stephen, gosh, it strikes me that a lot has happened to you in the last 10 years. Where, what were you doing 10 years ago? Well, I was actually kind of doing the same thing that I'm doing now. I was podcasting. <laughs> but the world of podcasting uh, has changed enormously. Yeah, it has. Um, and my, my my abilities have changed enormously as well. But back in 2009, I was actually working on a project that was consuming me, that had consumed me for a couple of months. And it was all about tracking carbon credits, understanding how cap and trade was going to work. Because if you remember from 2009 into 2010, we were expecting we were going to get some kind of carbon cap and trade bill. The prospect still looked pretty good as the year was turning over. And I was convinced that this was going to happen. So I was like, I'm going to put together this long series on how carbon cap and trade works. How do you actually track carbon credits? I bought voluntary carbon credits and um, my parents gave them to me for Christmas and I unwrapped them and then called up the organization. I think it was TerraPass that um, sold the credits. And I asked them, like, how do you how do you actually track these? And so I, I um, and then I called a ton of different experts to kind of walk through how carbon markets worked. And so podcasting and audio journalism was still consuming me. But I was definitely convinced that we were going to get some kind of carbon pricing in the U.S. and we know how that played out. Interesting. So you were one of those people where you thought carbon pricing was coming to America. <laughs> I think I'm I'm with a big crowd of people who thought that. <laughs> Gosh, are those people but, still but around? But a lot of people didn't care about <laughs> podcasting. I was convinced that podcasts were going to be big, and we are we had already had a pretty big audience for the show I was doing. You know, a lot of people are going to hear this and say, well, "How can I hear this story?" Unfortunately, the company I was working for, Renewable Energy World, later deleted the entire feed. So oh. I have that 
piece sitting on an old computer somewhere, but it is not out in the world. And maybe someday you'll get you'll get to hear it. <laughs> and to wrap this up, to tease our final segment, I have a story about Jigger and podcasting that I will tell at the end of the show. Uh, stay tuned for that. This podcast is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow sells the most solar inverters in the world. Those inverters are the backbone of some of the biggest and most innovative PV projects. And when you're putting such high volumes of power electronics in the field every day, you need people like Jill Dunn to make sure everything goes smoothly. Jill is a project manager at SunGrow. I caught up with her during a moment of downtime in the warehouse. The time just got by me. I didn't realize it was this late already. Busy day already? Oh, it always is. Keeps it interesting, I guess, huh? Jill's job is to make sure everything happens just the way it's supposed to. That means inverters are built to spec, they're shipped on time, and they fire up smoothly. So if, if something needs to happen, they go to you? Correct. What's the consequence if one of those pieces goes wrong? Uh, during commissioning, luckily, I can say that I have not had any uh, central inverters during a commissioning not turn on. So I have not had to um, worry about that, which is a wonderful thing. Nearly two and a half years at SunGrow, and Jill has a completely clean performance record. That means she's in high demand. And with nearly three gigawatts of inverters already booked for this year, her schedule is packed. Oh, yeah. I look at my calendar and my calendar up through Q2 and, and onward of next year. And that's pretty much all I can focus on at this time. I don't want to look too much farther out. It may scare me on how much more is on there. It is shocking looking at it, and it is absolutely wonderful looking at it at the same time with our growth. You just need to be very organized and detailed, and you can get through any project. So maybe if analysts want to understand the growth of the industry, they don't have to crunch the numbers. They just need to look at your calendar. (laughs) Absolutely. When you choose SunGrow Inverters, you aren't just choosing best-in-class technology. You're choosing people like Jill who work around the clock to make sure those inverters are meeting the highest performance standards. There's a lot of steps involved. You know, this is a very intense, a lot of stress, a lot of pressure to get things done on time. The best part of this is being able, at the end of it, to hand off the reports to the customer and, you know, have another successful project done. So, so do customers feel like they can stand by the Jill Dunn seal of approval? I believe so. <laughs> You can get more information on SunGrow's solar and storage inverters at sungrowpower.com. All right, now to the main event, our top stories of the decade. This is this is a hard one. I mean, I could choose any number of stories. But we broke it down so that Jigger will pick the top business story, Catherine will pick the top policy or politics story, and I'll pick the top tech story that made it a little bit easier. So we're going to choose within those categories the most important stories that defined the teens. And um, when I say stories, I really mean a trend. It can be a specific story, but probably more like a trend. And let's now hear your choices. Jigger, we'll start with you first. What do you think is the top business story or trend of the teens? Well, I think that the top business story of the teens, even though we're steeped in it every single day, is the domination of, you know, alternatives to coal. Like the fact that solar and wind and natural gas have just decimated coal to the point where we had a reduction of 3% of coal usage last year, uh, this year, and even India reduced coal consumption a little bit. Um, I think in 2009, I don't think anyone thought that coal was really dead or that it was really going to be dead. And I think today, everyone thinks it's going to be dead. Yeah, and we hadn't had the shale boom. So that was that was a huge piece of it. Sure. I think shale, solar and wind, I think lots of technology, the rise of China manufacturing. There's lots of pieces that played into the inevitability occurring. But I, I even when people said the Obama administration had a war on coal, I think there were people who really believed Trump when he said he was going to revive coal. And even with the moper from FERC notwithstanding uh, this week, I don't think anyone thinks coal is salvageable. So this can be interpreted in two ways. It could be interpreted as a technology story, which it is. But you're interpreting it as a business story. Why a business story? 
Because I think it really comes down to investor sentiment. That investors, the most sophisticated investors in the world, now believe that the future is dimmer for these fossil fuel companies. And so because of that, they are saying that the future cash flows from these companies, whether it's the oil companies or the coal companies, is going to be lower than they once thought it was going to be. And so they're sending the stock price lower today than it's been in a very long time. Remember, just like 10 years ago, I think ExxonMobil was the most valuable company in the world. And today it's, you know, one of the least valuable companies in, you know, the index. And you don't get a change in investor sentiment like that without other companies driving change. And that means business model innovation that allows companies and startups to take the technical improvements and operationalize them. That's been your mantra for some time. So talk about business model innovation and how that has driven a lot of these changes in energy markets and therefore investor sentiment. Well, I, look, I certainly think that that getting someone to bother with, let's say, a power purchase agreement was pretty hard at the beginning of the decade. But today, I'd say it's much easier, right? So business model innovation has started to become more commonplace. I mean, even when you think about a corporate PPA, right? So all these people have signed the Renewable Energy 100 pledge, and they're doing it by signing a power purchase agreement for 1,000 megawatts in the middle of nowhere and then having those megawatt hours shipped to their data center or to their facilities. And I mean, could you even imagine convincing Bill Gates when he was CEO of Microsoft of doing that? I mean, the reason we have that is because a whole new generation of leaders have come in to run these companies and they recognize that these tools that, you know, yes, was led by business model innovation, but were accepted by sustainability managers and CFOs and CEOs of these companies were worth deploying to be able to accelerate, you know, the speed of solutions in the market because they saw this as a way of hedging against, you know, the uncertainty that was coming in the future from negative investor sentiment against fossil fuels. One final point on this. We were talking to Tim Healy, the former CEO and co-founder of Enernoc, for an episode of Illuminators, and we, we just actually recently interviewed him. And he told this great story about how pre-IPO, or when they were raising money from venture capitalists, no one cared about business model innovation. They, Enernoc was definitely not a technology play for the most part. And it was about taking an existing resource and making it more efficient and, and building a, a business around it. And uh, obviously using like net, networking technologies to do that, but it wasn't really a technology play. And a lot of VCs pushed them off. And one VC in particular said this will never work. And then they IPO'd and they grew as a company. And he was able to look at that venture capitalist and you know say like, see, I told you so. And now <laughs> you look at 2019... I mean, business model innovation, I think, is such a huge part of what venture capitalists are interested in. Very different from, you know, the 2006 to 2009 period. Yeah, no, that's right. Well, you have that, uh, what is that called? Business model canvas, which is now taught by over 100 MBA programs in the in the world around, you know, how you evaluate uh, business models. And Sun Edison is one of the three uh, examples that they roll out because business model innovation has become such a large feature. It's so interesting because when I, before I'll even take a client uh, to help them on the policy side, if I won't take them unless they can explain to me their business model, <laughs> because if they don't have a business model that's cogent, there is no way any amount of policy is going to help them. So then the last question on this is, is how do you think this story will resolve itself, Jigger? Well, not to throw a softball to Catherine, but I think, you know, part of this is, you know, we're getting these 100% clean energy goals left and right now in the United States. And part of that is because uh, many people now believe that that the business interests than the stockholders of a lot of these utility companies and others are, you know, all on board with this trend. Did, did he just tee you up, Catherine? Did he just tee up your top story of the decade? <laughs> yeah, that it's all a policy play now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my top story is the Paris Accord. Um, I see that as mm. the biggest 
mover globally to try to mitigate climate change? So so let me follow up and ask you why, mm-hmm. because I agree with you, but I also will take the other side, which is this is a voluntary commitment. As we saw after Paris, we've seen failure of negotiation at subsequent COPs, and Madrid completely fell apart this year. So why do you think Paris is so important, given that in the aftermath, the U.S. has pulled out and other countries can't get their act together? Yeah, so we still have some work to do, but let me put this in perspective a little bit. Um, in 2009, I went to COP15. COP, COP means Conference of the Parties, and that's the parties of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, UNFCCC. And I went to Copenhagen, and I was there um, with a group led by Lisa Jacobson, who runs the Business Council for Sustainable Energy. And I talked to her about this, too, to try to get her perspective on it. And Copenhagen was one of those where nobody was on the same page, and they just could not figure out how do we set up a structure that all of these nations can agree to, all these governments can agree to? And then I was on the outside as part of civil society saying, well, then, you know, you guys are the ones who are setting the rules, but we're all the ones that have to implement it or are impacted by this. So how does this all work? But by the time they got to Paris in 2015, and Christiana Figueres from Costa Rica was leading that convention. She really was incredibly impressive. And I've seen her since then. She's an amazing human being. Um, And they were really able to establish some ground rules and get everybody on the same page. And nobody can get nobody, even though it's voluntary, everybody still has their nationally determined contributions. Everybody has sustainable development goals that they have to reach. Everybody's on the same page. And in 2020, those ratchet up. Now, there are a lot of reasons that Madrid fell apart, one of which is that there just wasn't enough time, given that Chile was leading it, there wasn't enough time to do, you know, they're trying to save their country. There wasn't a lot of time for prep. So when you go into one of these things, you really have to have it almost baked. You have to know exactly what the outcomes are going to be when you go into these discussions. And I think they just did not have the time to do that. So there were a lot of reasons that happened. Of course, another big reason is that a player such as the U.S. that was so important to Paris is no longer taking that role. And so it really has been difficult to get everybody on board. Um, but the good news, I think, going forward is that businesses and civil society, those communities are put and subnational. So, so governments other than national governments, so state, local governments, are taking a role such that, look, we're the implementers. We can still get this done. We still have goals. Whether or not the federal government is putting forward policy for those, we're still implementing them, as we always have. And so I see Paris as as the tool that enabled everybody to be moving forward in the same direction on the same page. So part of what I'd say is, I think, I totally agree with Catherine, and, but I would say it in a little bit different way, which is that Copenhagen was really around shared sacrifice. It was basically like, you know, the rich countries have to pay the poor countries to decarbonize and we have to figure out how to like find $100 billion and do all these things. And by the time we got to Paris, part of the reason Paris came together is because people really viewed this as what it was, was one of the, you know, real economic engines of growth. Um, And when you look at what's happened in the last 10 years, in fact, you know, the world GDP has gone up 45% and emissions have only gone up 15%. Um, and I think you'll see, as Michael Liebrick talks about in his latest piece, that emissions will probably go down in the next decade while economic growth will go up. And so I think Paris came about because world leaders actually finally believed that you could split up, you know, GDP growth and emissions growth. So then the optimistic way to view this is even if it's a bunch of voluntary agreements, you actually think it's driving local policy, Catherine, like without in the absence of the Paris Agreement, we wouldn't necessarily have these crazy number of commitments from cities and states and uh, all over the world. Yeah, directionally, it got everybody pointed in the same direction and gave some real hard goals to what everyone needed to do and what their 
what their level of participation was. And I think that was really, really important. And so some countries and regions are moving forward apace. I think most are, or at least they're being held accountable by peer pressure. Um, and and there's the goals are going to ratchet up in 2020, and and there's some things that are just never people are ne- are never politically okay with like a liability regime, this loss and damage. Like people don't like that at all. Most large economies don't like those, and a lot of developing economies don't either. So there's some mechanisms that don't work as well as others, but and and they couldn't agree to sort of this carbon regime, but directionally everybody is going forward. And my only concern is the U.S. seating leadership. I think that is that is not helpful to the rest of the process. And, and the U.S. can put so much pressure on other large economies that can help keep everybody on track. But no matter what, the Paris Accord stays as is. It's very difficult to get out of, and those goals remain the same. I totally agree, Catherine. I, I do think that this has been a real catalyst for people. Um, remember that for many countries, they're net importers of fossil fuels. And when you're a net importer of fossil fuels, you're using hard currency, U.S. dollars in most cases, to pay for those fossil fuels. So you can't use those U.S. dollars to make your factories more efficient. You can't use those U.S. dollars for lots of other purposes that you need for importing goods and services into the country. And so part of the reason why a lot of these countries are so excited about the Paris Agreement is because of all of the solidarity they have around technical support and other support. I mean, it's also a framework by which banks are talking to these countries now, right? They talk about their you know, goals and like how their capital can be used to help fulfill those goals. So it becomes this organizing document by which um, people relate to each other. Yeah, and it gives everybody an action agenda. So there are things that you actually have to do as actions. And you can, of course, you have flexibility in which ones you take. But once you sign on to them, then you're committed. All right, Stephen. So what do you think your top, you know, trend or story is in tech? Well, it's it's kind of the opposite of what you chose, Jigger. So I'm going to choose a lot of different technologies. Advanced biofuels, geothermal, wave and tidal power, small wind, small hydro, most solar that's not crystalline silicon, solar hot water, concentrating solar power, and nuclear. Why do you think I chose those technologies? Because they showed the least amount of progress over the decade. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, those are all the technologies that peaked in hype or deployment or both in the first part of the decade, and they are technologies that just like didn't they didn't define the decade at all. Um, and if I look back at the stories that I was writing about in 2009, it was a healthy balance of all of these. It really felt like it was anyone's game at that point. I think, you know, most people looked at wind and solar and said that they're probably going to dominate, but there was this sense that geothermal was going to boom, small hydro was having a renaissance, thin film solar, all sorts of different types of thin film solar would dominate and crystalline silicon would get pushed out. Small wind was going to have, you know, some big market share. You know, everyone was talking about marine power and, you know, there were all these pilot projects for hydrokinetic turbines um, in, in uh, you know, marine, marine environments. And they just, all of these technologies didn't get traction. And, you know, I was actually looking at some of my stories I was writing back in 2009. I was writing a ton about geothermal, and we know how that played out over the last decade. So I actually chose the technologies that really didn't define the decade. I have to say, I also thought that lead green buildings and net zero buildings would have more salience in the last decade. I think they're going to do better in the next decade. Um, efficiency clearly did a great job in the last decade, right? I mean, the fact that LED lighting was banned or whatever, or the incandescent light bulb was banned and LED lighting came in was huge. But I really thought that net zero buildings was going to be like more regular by now. I did too. And that's a consequence not of the technologies and materials that are available, but the building practices. And I think that's what worries me most. Uh, in the built environment, the cycles of change are so incredibly slow, even though green building technologies and methods have been around for so long. 
it's going to take a it's going to take a long time for them to really take hold. I will say though that efficiency has been one of the important stories of the decade, uh, particularly in the built environment. And uh, you know, I've seen estimates that we've probably saved way more kilowatt hours of electricity than we have actually generated from wind or solar over the last ten years. Yeah, and I think that's completely true. Um, but I, I do think that the the whole concept of deployment-led innovation, I think, really came into its own in this decade, right? So all those technologies that you ended up quoting as not being successful, I think largely people thought, well, if we just put more R&D into it, the costs will just come down and then we'll deploy it. And I think what wind and solar proved in this last decade is you actually have to deploy it even if it's at 40 cents a kilowatt hour, and that's how you get the cost down. So then, Stephen, if I totally agree with Jigger on that. What does that mean for how you think about going forward? What do you think the big technologies are going to be in the next decade? Well, I think it's the standard ones. It's it's wind, onshore and offshore. I think offshore will play an enormous role. Obviously, solar, batteries, and general electrification. I think the rise of cheap wind and solar allows us to think about using excess electricity in really unique ways to create molecular storage using hydrogen or renewable gas to burn in power plants. Um, Batteries are going to continue to get cheaper. There's absolutely no doubt. And conventional lithium ion is going to improve and you're going to be able to get longer duration storage just through lithium ion. So I do think we're entering a decade dominated by solar and batteries and the push for the electrification of everything. And I do think that with so much excess renewable energy, you're going to find unique ways of, uh, you know, using molecules for storage. Hydrogen. That's the future. <laughs> Spend the future. What is what is the phrase? It's the, the it's been the technology of the future and it always will be. I believe that's fusion. <laughs> Come on now. I, I, I think th- I, I have to say, I do think that the next 10 years are going to be really cool to watch. Well, then let's talk about where the next decade is taking us. Uh, I I think that they're going to be cool, but I also have a lot of cynicism going into this decade. So let's unpack it. Scientists say we have just over a decade to avoid global temperature rise of more than 1.5 degrees Celsius. Uh, Once we lock in two degrees or above, we're we're looking at exponential increases in disaster. I mean, 1.5 degrees is bad enough, but anything over two Uh, starts to have exponential impacts. And the next decade is going to be the most important decade in the history of humanity. I mean, I think it'll feel that way in the history books when we look back. So the question is, what needs to happen in these same categories, policy, business, tech, to win the decade? So same as before, Catherine will take policy, Jigger will take business, finance, I'll take tech. Catherine, over to you for policy. What, what, um, let's actually like look at the UNIPCC. What do they say needs to happen in order to avoid dangerous temperature increases? Yeah, I mean, we have to do everything and we have to do it a lot faster. So while the power sector is decarbonizing pretty well, the building sector needs a lot of work, transportation, mobility, you know, like shipping and aviation, industry needs to change. I think in the US, we have to take leadership again for climate. I, you know, I talked a lot about that as a global leader, but within the US, we have to have everybody aligned and everything directed towards solving the issue. So we have to have our president and our Senate and our House of Representatives aligned with all of those other state leaders and local leaders who are doing the same thing and to really organize our government around this. So, you know, the, a president would have to have an executive order that say, all right, every agency is directed, all of your portfolios are directed at how do you solve climate change? And it could be through pretty mundane things like codes and standards that are really important to making sure that, you know, by having standards for vehicles and standards for appliances and lighting and codes for building materials, all of this is really important to making sure we driving drive innovation. So what about more drastic stuff? Like, I think we're getting to a point now where policy is going to get a lot more drastic, or at least we need more drastic policy. What about fossil fuel bans? What about internal combustion engine bans? The, the big stuff that people are starting to grapple with. So I think that 
before you ban all of these things, just take away their incentives. So take away all of those fossil fuel tax breaks and other kinds of subsidies that they get, because that will continue to make them, you know, less economic. Um, We have to make sure that we educate people. So have lots of public service announcements about what can people do to help solve the issue. The tax code is still super powerful. And I know some of these things sound incremental, but but they can really make a difference. We also have been pretty bad at manufacturing policy. We need to get some really good manufacturing policy in place. And then, like Jigger said, we need to leverage all this private sector capital out there and try to help direct it and provide means for it to get where it needs to go. So just um, recently, Congresswoman Debbie Dingell from Michigan introduced the National Climate Bank on the House side. Um, There was Senator Markey introduced it in the Senate back in the summer. And this is a bill that would buy down risk that would do blended finance with the private sector it would, would allow regional projects to be built and bring down the cost so that you can get financing for projects that otherwise wouldn't pencil out. And it is a huge environmental justice component, a labor component, um, a trying to help coal communities component to it. So, you know, we need all of these tools at once, but you really have to have it organized from the top so that Everything you think about is pointed at solving this problem. And I think we can do it if we if we organize that way. So I think there's a business trend that will allow us to do it. Do tell. Are we are we is this uh, are we switching to you, Jigger? Well, I don't know if we want to do the full switch, but I'll give you a teaser. Um, So, look, I think that what we've gotten out of this last decade and we're going into the next decade with is the four D's of modern infrastructure. So I think modern infrastructure going forward will be decentralized, right? From big monolithic and flexible to small distributed and resilient. I think it's gonna be decarbonized because I think we'll have solutions for most infrastructure that's getting deployed. I think we're going digital, right? So we're moving away from analog and we're gonna be you know, monitoring stuff with 5G, et cetera. And I, I think it's going to be largely democratized for away from regulated monopolies to customer choice. And so what that enables is allowing smaller and smaller democratic jurisdictions um, to make decisions. So whereas I think for a long time we thought we needed a federal response to these things, I don't even know in the future that we're going to need a state response to these things. I think you'll see it at the county, city, university, corporate level, where people just start to do this directly because there's enough of them that are political and, you know, sort of like agitated locally. And I think it'll actually unlock the largest business trend of the next 10 years. So I actually agree with both of you. I agree with Catherine's prescription right, of like what we need. And I agree, Jigger, that there will be more local agitation and movement. But like, I don't see that as getting us anywhere to where we need to be. Within the next 10 years, uh, look, I don't like I don't like the fact that we have to have like massive bans, but we're going to need to start grappling with severely restricting the extraction and use of fossil fuels. And that means pretty drastic policy stuff that is not even on the table right now stuff that would be so politically unpalatable um if we're going to meet what the science tells us we need to do and so i just i I think that getting basic national policy in place is difficult enough taking it to the level that we need to take it feels so impossible to me and i'm sorry that i feel so cynical about it but i it's just where i stand as we go into the new decade so let's let's wrap up the policy piece then, Catherine. What are you most bullish about and what are you most cynical about? Well, it's almost in the same piece. I, I am bullish that the House of Representatives, which has been holding hearings, I mean, I alone was asked to testify before three different committees, Climate Crisis Committee, but also House Science Committee and House Rules Committee. Almost every committee is holding hearings and discussions on what can we do about this problem, about this crisis. So I'm I'm bullish about the House continuing that. I think that unless the political 
environment changes in the Senate and the White House that we won't do it with our with the big government. I mean, we can we can work around the margins. We can get some things done through you know, the transportation bill and the defense authorization bill, but those are very incremental. I really think we're going to have to have someone in the White House and a Senate that really cares about this and understands that this is a crisis of monumental proportions, but that also could have massively positive economic benefits for this country. So um, I'm nervous about the political landscape, but if we can change that, I'm I'm hopeful that we can get this done. I'd say it more strongly on the other side, though, Catherine. Like, I actually don't see anything else on the horizon that could provide for a solution to some of our social ills in the country. Like, when you think about the decimation of blue-collar work and, you know, and all of that stuff that we're dealing with that led to the rise of Trump, the only way to solve it is to ramp up infrastructure investment and, you know, and that's the only way to do that profitably is in clean infrastructure investment. So we touched on yours, Jigger. Um, why don't you summarize for us what you think needs to happen in the business sector to avoid these danger temperature, dangerous temperature increases? And, you know, what does that mean practically? So I just think that the point of business is to figure out a way to get the cost down. Right, This whole deployment-led innovation that occurred in this last decade, I think now happens in every single sector, right? So whether it's going, the easiest way to describe it is at a college campus. I mean, today, even at a $20 million level, right, for a small college campus that has, you know, 2,000 students, um, we can actually decarbonize that campus profitably today. You can switch all of their vehicles to electric. You can figure out a way to get them powered by renewable energy. You can get them to almost mm-hmm. net zero waste. You can get you know radical energy efficiency in there. You can get almost every single practical small unit, your neighborhood, et cetera, that you live in to something that's close to decarbonized. The challenge is getting the decision makers in that small unit to say yes. But I think that's a big deal. I think going into the next decade, the fact that I don't think your local bank will do it this year, but you know, obviously we would at Generate Capital. But I think by the end of the decade, the next decade, your local bank will decarbonize you without collateral. I think they'll just say it's worth it because it saves enough money throughout all the measures to make it happen. And I just think the fact that business believes that and business believes that there's a huge profit motive around there means that there's going to be a ton of capital that goes into doing that. And you're going to see a lot of different companies um, start to converge and, you know, mix and blend into other people's space, because that's, I think, where this whole thing is headed. But Stephen, how about from the technology angle? Do you think there's one technology that's going to that's going to save us? No, definitely not. I I did outline the, you know, solar, wind, batteries, broader electrification being the dominant force. I definitely believe that. But what the the UN says is we need to double global efficiency by 2030. So massively more investments in efficiency. We've done a really good job at lowering the energy intensity of the global economy, but we have a lot more. So doubling global efficiency by 2030 is going to be a fairly heavy lift. We need to spend a trillion to $1.7 trillion a year on renewables efficiency and carbon capture. And but to put that number in perspective, we already spend five to seven trillion on infrastructure every year. So it's diverting, you know, one to 1.7 of that to clean and good stuff. Mm-hmm. Right, which is why we have to talk about this not in terms of cost, but in terms of investment opportunity. And the uh, wh- however you frame it, though, there's no doubt that this is unprecedented. In fact, the UN IPCC says there is no documented historic precedent for this scale of deployment. Uh, and we need to get to net zero emissions by 2050. What does that mean over the next decade? That means that we need to see CO2 emissions decline by about 45% um, by 2030 based on 2010 levels. Yeah. So what does that mean practically, Stephen? Um, well, it means that we're not tinkering around anymore. Um, Obviously, we just need to keep doing what we're doing on the renewables side and the storage side. Um, 
because we need to get on a path of over 70% renewable electricity by 2050 in this decade is crucial. And I think that we can get there. I mean, most of the conventional assessments are skeptical about whether or not we can get to that level of renewable electricity. But I'm a believer that we've continually proven those models wrong and that we'll, we'll be on a path over the next decade to get to the 70 to 80 percent renewable electricity by 2050 range. But it also means that that's just one small piece. We need to start the process, according to the UN, of removing a thousand gigatons of CO2 from the atmosphere over the coming decades. And that requires R&D and investment in afforestation, reforestation, land restoration, soil carbon sequestration, direct uh, air carbon capture and storage, a variety of carbon capture technologies. And that's a difficult lift. Um, And it just means that we need to focus the next phase of attention on industrial sources of CO2. That could mean, uh, uh, you know, CO2 capture. It could mean more efficient um, materials and processes. And that's really where we need to put the policy and government attention. So those are some of the more practical elements that are going to come out of. uh, So those are some of the more practical elements that I think will need to happen over the next decade. So I I think that this is going to be challenging and hard, don't get me wrong. But I think that the historical precedent matters. It took over 30 years for coal, natural gas, and oil separately to go from 1% market share to 10% market share. And solar and wind achieved the feat in less than 15 years. And so I think we are accelerating. And I, I do think that it is going to take a World War Zero, you know, do you steal a term from John Kerry and Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, type footing to get there. But I think that is going to happen. I mean, the other thing that's going to happen in the next 10 years is going to be a lot of stuff that goes badly. And I do think it's going to galvanize support for folks doing things at scale. Um, It wouldn't be surprising to me if Miami Beach fell into the ocean in the next 10 years. So as I said, you know, I'm bullish on the the march of solar and wind and batteries and electrification. And I'm actually a believer that that this abundance of renewables is going to allow us to create new kinds of renewable fuels and forms of molecular storage. Um, But I just feel like although entrepreneurs and investors and, you know, governments are probably going to start focusing on agriculture and industry and transportation, I'm less optimistic about the time frame because I think we're entering this decade seeing how hard these issues are to tackle. And I'm 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 pessimistic a little bit. Like we've underinvested in R and D. It takes decades for new kinds of tech to become bankable and reach scale, and it's particularly hard in the industrial sector. And we're only now reaping the rewards of decades of incremental development in wind and solar and batteries. Uh, we're going to see the industrial solutions play out over the next decade or two, and we don't have that much time. So I, I I'm I'm a little bit. I wouldn't say cynical, but I'm a little bit skeptical about these other solutions just because of the time frame. I don't think we underinvest in R&D. I think we invested what we could and we're going to keep investing more. And I think that's going to be fine. And we're going to keep, you know, deploying as fast as we can. We're certainly not on track to 1.5 degrees. The only way to probably do that is air capture and some of these other ways of getting carbon out of the atmosphere, like you said. And, you know, I would prefer that they do that through regenerative agriculture and, um, you know, planting a crap load of trees and not deforesting our, the Amazon as opposed to direct air capture, because I just think direct air capture seems far-fetched. But, um, you know, I do think that there's a pathway here to thread the needle. And, I mean, that makes me hopeful because, you know, in 2009, people were talking to me about six degrees of warming. And that scared the crap out of me. And now we're talking about you know, we're sort of on track to 2.9 degrees of warming, which is terrible. And the feedback loops are unconscionable. But it seems like progress. Well, all right, gang, the last free electrons of the year. So when you're both at Catherine's party uh, that I was not invited to, clinking glasses, <laughs> enjoying your enjoying each other's company, what factoid or news story are you going to impress people with at this party? Catherine, since you're the host of this party, I guess you start. Uh, well, I'll probably be kvetching about a lot of stuff that happened at the end of this Congress that uh, was not great. So there are a couple things that were good that happened, like the 
National Climate Bank bill was introduced. I think they're going to put out the discussion graph draft for energy and commerce, House Energy and Commerce's climate bill, which will be great. Um, but then there's like a lot of stuff that's not great that's happened today. Just today, the administration said they aren't going to ban incandescent light bulbs. Sorry, Jigger, because they want people to have choice. Um then the tax package, the extenders fell apart. So there was a one-year extension for the production tax credit for wind. And some of those orphan credits, energy credits, have been extended through 2020. Um, and biodiesel got multiple years. That was Senator Grassley uh, who got that what he wanted. But there was no storage investment tax credit. There was no offshore wind. There were no EV credits. The investment tax credit for solar was not extended. So just a lot of stuff fell apart this week. Um, I mean, it was a rough week all around. Um, and so it just means 2020 is going to be super busy again. So I assume that a lot of people coming to my party are going to be talking about what the heck are we going to do in 2020? Well, Jigger, when you're wandering around Catherine's party with your bubble vest on, clinking glasses, what are you, <laughs> what are you going to be talking about? Well, first, I'm going to tell everybody how awesome it was that Greta Thunberg got Times Person of the Year. Yay! I was very happy to see that. And I think it's that level of local enthusiasm that gives me comfort in my prediction for the next 10 years. And then I'm going to talk to people about the new core plant in Missouri that, you know, was originally conceived to using coal power, but turned out that it was cheaper for them to sign a corporate PPA with wind energy because it was a lot cheaper than, you know, using fossil fuels. And now it's one of the first steel plants that's mostly powered by wind and solar. That's awesome. I think it gives me hope. So do you want, so I teased a story um, about you, Jigger. Do you want to know what it is? Sure. I've been waiting the whole episode. Back in 2009... I was before the podcasting boom, many, many years before podcasting really took off. S you know, this was six years before people started really raising real amounts of money around podcasting. I was convinced that I was going to be able to spin off a production company focused on, um, you know, deep business reporting on, on renewables and the clean energy transition. And you were my first target to ask for money. And I was going to, I had this whole like pitch deck and I was going to ask you for money and I never ended up doing it because I tabled the idea. But in late 2009, as I was actually working on that carbon story that I was telling you about at the top of the show, I was simultaneously thinking about who I was going to go raise money from and you were at the very top of my list. Wow. Well, I mean, I have to say there's very few people uh, that have been a more avid listener to your podcasting than me. So I probably would have been compelled to give or to invest. Well, let me ask you, what do you think you would have said had I pitched you on a podcast business at that time? Because although you were a listener, the business models hadn't really formed yet. That was actually kind of a dark period for podcasting. There were very few advertisers who were interested in the space. I think the period from like 2008 to 2013 was considered the dark ages of podcasting. What do you think you would have said as an investor if someone came to you at that time with you know, a podcasting pitch? I think I would have said the same thing Catherine was talking about earlier, right? What's the business model? And I think what you would have said was not a lot right now, right? It's basically the same as the late 90s. It's eyeballs, or in this case, ears. And, you know, you would just get a whole bunch of listeners without necessarily having the requisite revenues to support it. But, you know, it, was, it, was, it would have been an if you build it, they will come strategy, right? Yeah. So instead of giving you money, Stephen, he decided to just come on and yammer on the show with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't think people know the origin story of this podcast. So I was at Green Tech Media and Jigger calls me up and he said, hey, you know, I've been thinking about this idea for a podcast based on the Slate Political Gab Fest. We were both really big listeners of that show. 
And the Slate Political Gab Fest was actually one of the first podcasts that gained traction. They launched that in 2005. So that was right around when I was thinking about the medium as well. And uh, so Jigger says, like, well, I love this model. Let's do, you know, pick three stories and just debate them. And uh, and we needed another expert. And we had had worked with Catherine on another project at Green Tech Media. And we were like, Catherine's perfect. Let's do this. And we all got on the line and we... That's 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 the origin story of how we formed, and this this format is now taken off, right? I mean, uh, we start, we we just sort of copied the format because it's so compelling. But now, you know, five thirty eight. Uh, what's the Crooked Media podcast? Uh, Pod Save America. You know, a lot of the famous podcasts use this sort of three act model when discussing news stories and it's really worked well for us people people are compelled by it yeah and my only question had nothing to do with substance it was what do i wear <laughs> and, you, and you assured me that nothing would be fine <laughs> well that's it folks it's the last time you're going to hear us before 2020 a big thanks to Catherine and jigger uh, just have so much fun with you guys every year and onward we go into the next decade A big thanks to everyone who is along for the ride with us. Uh, Thank you for listening. Y'all have made our decade much richer and interesting, and we hope we did the same for you. And let's all do it together in the 20s now. Um, You can do us an end-of-year favor by giving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or just spreading the word on social media. Tell us what your top stories of the decade are. What did we miss? What did we get right or wrong in our analysis? We always love to hear from you, and we will retweet you from the Energy Gang account. Jigger Shaw is the president of Generate Capital, and my co-host Catherine Hamilton is the chair of 38 North Solutions, and my other co-host. This show is produced by Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. We are edited by me and Daniel Waldorf. Thank you for listening. We will catch you next year. 